Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at Ed Surge. Early childhood education in America is on the cusp of historic overhaul. A law that's pending in Congress would help support free, universal pre-K for every three and four-year-old in the nation and make childcare more affordable for millions of families. It'd be the biggest policy change and the biggest investment in early childhood in decades. The measure addresses what many experts see as a crisis in early childhood care and education that has been pushed to the breaking point by the pandemic. You might be hearing a lot about this issue these days, including coverage here at EdSurge. But on today's podcast, we want to step back and look at how we got here, at what the situation means for educators at all levels, and at what the Biden administration's proposals could mean. To help break this down, I connected with Elliot Haspel, author of the 2019 book, Crawling Behind, America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. He also has an article out in The Atlantic just this week about the latest developments in this issue in Washington. Haspel got into this issue a few years ago when he was working in education policy and kept hearing of how much education equity comes back to problems at the earliest ages, even before some kids get to a formal school setting. And he says he really started to understand the issue when he became a parent himself and saw the challenges that even well-off parents face. I started by asking Haspel, what is it about the situation in early childhood that makes it such a crisis? Yeah, I think there are two aspects people might not see. The, the first is just how far and broad the pain point reaches nowadays. So this is not, you know, I mentioned in my book, this is not like a poor people's problem. This is something where middle class, even upper middle class families um, are deeply impacted by the inability to find affordable, high quality childcare. Not that it wouldn't be a massive issue we need to deal with if it was just concentrated in lower income families, but it is notable, I think, that Basically, unless you're very affluent, um, this issue of finding and affording early care and education is is a significant problem. And then on the other side of things is that you know we have seen the sector itself sort of start to uh, kind of do a tailspin, and so it's always been precarious. It's always been hard to find you know, staff members. And now we're seeing a huge exodus of, of staff. This field is still more than 10% below its pre-pandemic normal. Um, and it's because it's, the field is unable to keep up uh, with its wages and compensation uh, with those, even other low-wage industries, your Amazons and, and McDonald's of the world are now raising their wages. Um, but childcare programs, because of the economic constraints, really don't have the ability to do so. So, um, you know, part of when we think about the impact the childcare has and early learning generally has not just on families' ability to work, but on children's development themselves, on their pre-academic skills. Uh, you know, the fact that it's really not working for anyone, it's hard to find, it's of questionable quality, uh, you know, the staff members are scarce. It's really a, a rough kind of landscape for the early years right now. You know, one thing that struck me is you tell the story of, you know, you have a child, a young, a young child yourself, it sounds like. Um, I do as well. I have, I have two little kids, one who's in first grade. Um, and so this early childhood is a very fresh, uh, experience and it, and you, you do talk about the, the realities a bit of e- what even a pretty affluent family, um, deals with when trying to find care and, and for those early years. 
Um, the one thing that struck me was a the the scheduling that can take place for people of like that what that precarious system like adds up to. Um, could you give an example of of either something that you researched from your book or, or maybe even your own experience about like how the juggling that goes on to try to patch together um, childcare for a lot of families? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I remember like one, you know, family that I interviewed for the book and they were like, well, like on Monday, like, you know, my kid goes to like school for, you know, they're at their half day, like daycare. And then my grand, like their grandparent has to pick them up. But then on like Tuesday, like they've got some class. So then I have to work from home so that I can get them. And then like I hand them off to my husband for the, like the next shift. And, and it's one of the things where like, because again, like it's not coherent. And so, and even the funding isn't coherent at the moment. Um, that parsing to you're piecing together enough hours of care that your family might need um, and in the flexibility the flexible ways that it needs to exist is is so painful and this is again this is for middle class affluent like uh, or at least you know comfortable like families so much less families on the lower end of the income spectrum who need for example care during non-traditional hours huge problem right if you're working if you're a nurse or as custodian working the night shift at a hospital and you're like a single parent, like that is a tremendous problem, right? If you're working, if you're a, you know, have your husband is, is one of the, you know, several million truckers in this country who is gone for long periods of time, right? Like that's going to significantly change like your childcare needs. It's these, uh, we have a country where, which is very pluralistic and very diverse and, you know, I think it's one thing when it's it's sort of they're in elementary or middle school and they're a little more wherewithal and they can go to a before and after school program. It's a little easier. Like, but you know, again, uh, three year olds need consistent supervision, uh, and so it, it, the the need is higher. But we don't have anything in place for it. And that it seems like it's been exacerbated by the pandemic and the economic fallout from that in a big way. Yes. I think that's absolutely right. And so, you know, this was, again, this was a problem, the pre-pandemic, but the, the pandemic has, has made it much worse. And again, the other thing it's done, which it is not done for other industries, is it's, it's really blown up the sort of precarious uh, kind of equilibrium that existed in the field. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you were, so the median wage for childcare workers is about $12 an hour. And so uh, if you think about, you know, and it was that was $12 an hour and, you know, McDonald's offering $12 an hour. Okay. Like at least you could compete. Like it's not, I don't know if we want our, you know, the people are working with our youngest children to be competing with McDonald's, but, but you could. Uh, but now that, you know, the McDonald's of the world are up at $15, $16 an hour and unlikely to go back anytime soon. Um, but that's not just a pandemic artifact. That's this new normal, um, which, you know, absent some significant public investment is just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, you know, we're seeing programs that are have empty classrooms sitting empty, not because they don't have spaces and not because there aren't parents that want those spots because they literally can't find the staff to, to put in those rooms and to make the ratios that they have to, to have to meet. One of the most frequent questions I get is why are parents paying so much money and childcare teachers are getting so little pay? Like, and so then the answer, written in sort of a few sentences, is that it's very expensive, as it should be, to provide childcare because the mandatory adult to child ratios must be really, really low. So if a teacher can only care for six or eight toddlers, and like when I taught fourth grade, like I could have twenty-five or thirty, you know, and think about how many people a restaurant server can, you know, serve, uh, and so you're talking about ratios 
ratios of one to six, one to four, one to eight. It's a very personnel heavy enterprise. And so the true cost of care, what you actually need to pay, uh, it'd be bringing in if you're a program to both keep the lights on and pay your teachers well is much actually much higher than what parents are paying right now. So even though parents are paying through the nose, programs are not doing well. And so that's where this question becomes of, okay, if there's this gap, if the true cost of care is $20,000 a kid and parents are only being charged $10,000 and we can't be charging them more, then like what's making up that gap? The, the sort of answer has traditionally been uh, public funding, right? This is where public money comes in because it's, it's a societal good to have childcare just like it is to have fire stations and libraries and schools and other things. It's interesting, in your book, you talk about the history a little bit. It, it seems like there have been other times where there have been political discussions about reforming this system, but it never, it just hasn't, hasn't happened. Can you talk a little bit about what the discussion has been in the past about, you know, you know, what, what has been the argument, um, pro and against having more, say, government intervention or, or supports for early child care? Uh, so the two main times in American history where we've had sort of these opportunities to, to build a more robust child care system was after World War II, and one was in 1971. And so after World, during World War II, when all the, the men went off to the front lines, women had to enter the workforce, uh, you know, the the Congress passed what was known as the Lanham Act. Um, they ended up funding a number of public, basically publicly funded child care programs. They're actually quite high quality. Uh, when all the men came back after the, there was this sort of moment of, well, what are we going to do now? Um, you know, there was kind of this debate and you could actually, it's kind of shocking if you go and look up the historical pictures of, you know, these women and children holding up signs like, you know, child daycare is a right or like, I, you know, let women have the choice to work. It could be, you could see that today. They really hasn't changed um but in the end you know the, the funding was pulled because sort of this societal idea that really mothers of young children should be home with them and it's not really the place of women to be you know in the workforce uh at or these mothers like that kind of won the day um in in coming out of world war ii interestingly as a footnote it did not win the day in places like europe because the devastation was so great there from the war they actually still needed the women working um so this is where you see a divergence sort of in the even in the western world between kind of the the american market kind of uh, uh sort of system that that didn't let didn't want women working and then the the continental europe systems uh and then the next chance came in 1971 so i think called the comprehensive child development act was passed on a bipartisan basis and this would have done um, actually a lot of what the current build back better legislation is proposing to do it would have created an as a publicly funded nationally supported but but state and local run you know, network of, of child care programs. It would have had a sliding fee scale for uh, parent fees. It would have put, you know, it would have put more training requirements in place for teachers. You know, a lot of good stuff. It was very forward thinking for its day, actually. This is 1971. It actually goes through and p- passes the House and the Senate, right? Yeah, so the House and the Senate. Yeah, it does. Exactly. Um, bipartisan basis. And then it gets the, the desk of President Nixon, who actually everyone originally thought would be fine with it. Um, he ends up vetoing it, and the story of the history goes, basically, it was many of his more um, religiously conservative advisors, like Pat Buchanan, who really saw this as government intrusion into the family prerogative. Um, and this, right, this is happening at the same time that the logic of sort of this very free market, kind of almost libertarian capitalism is coming into place as the, the 70s are getting going. Um, and so Nixon vetoes it in very strong language. He, he talks about how this would, you know, cause 
cause the federal government's like long shadow into the family. And, you know, and, and basically, you know, Pat Buchanan is quoted later on in interviews of saying like he wanted to put a to nail in the coffin of the whole idea of, of publicly funded child care then and there. And he largely succeeds. So, you know, after 1971, the sort of imagination of the country around child care it becomes much, much smaller and it hasn't literally been until the past two years that we've gotten back to, to talking about the level of investment that, that would be needed to create a system that's affordable and accessible for everyone. Yeah, no, it's an, it's, it was an interesting period. I don't think I realized how much this debate that, as you, as you mentioned, is going on very much right now has, has happened before um, in kind of recent American memory. Um, I want to get to that policy debate in a minute, but I wanted to just talk one uh, briefly a little bit about more on the, how uh, the context about the research. So the other thing you mentioned, uh, or the, the other thing that's been well-documented is, um, the, the impact of, you know, on the brain in this time of life, this very early childhood and, and what it means to have, um, consistent care and high quality care. Um, it, can you say a little bit about, um, you know, what, what you found about the, um, the benefits, um, of early childhood education and, and, and consistent care? Yeah, so there are two ways in which offering high-quality early childhood education seems to benefit children. One is just providing them access to these high-quality experiences themselves. And I wish we could, when we say high-quality, what do we mean? We mean that the fundamentally the caregiver is in sort of a responsive, warm relationship with the child, right? So they're sort of seeing what the child's interested in. They're they're offering, asking questions. They're offering sort of these opportunities to engage with interesting stimulate stimuli, right? They're, they're helping the child, you know, problem solve, problem solve socially, right? So, so there's a lot of these, um, you know, we're talking about quality and so the early years, it's it, it certainly, it's, is a different thing than when we think about sort of the academic work of, of a middle school or high school teacher, but it's no less important. What we actually know is that, you know, children's brain architecture, uh, you know, the neural connections that they're making is a, the early years are a period of explosive growth and, and brain development is cumulative. And so the connections that you make later in life built on the connections that you make earlier in life. And so, um, you know, there's strong correlations, particularly actually, even if you set aside the sort of reading and math and all the rest of it in, in what's known as executive functioning. So children's ability to, to calm themselves down, to, to take turns, to concentrate when there are distractions around um, is really influenced by their early environments. And so, uh, you know, that actually tracks forward, you know, much later in life. And so, you know, I think sometimes people have probably heard of sort of the debate a few years ago in Head Start and like the fade out effects. And basically that turns out to be the wrong question because that's the question of, of asking, like, if your kid learns the alphabet, you know, when they're three years old, like, is their reading going to be better when they're in like fourth grade? It's actually not. Your kid could learn the alphabet when they're three. They could learn the alphabet when they're four. What what the, turns out with brain development is what they really need is those executive functioning skills. They need to to learn how to interact with one another. They learn how to sort of exist in a in a learning environment. That stuff lasts much much longer. Um, and the other thing about early childhood education, which I think sometimes we miss, is the impact it has on the family. So. You know, the, the family and the parents and guardians have an outsized impact on children, not not surprisingly. Uh, and so with what if you're providing, you know, deeply subsidized or free, you know, early childhood education, what you're doing is you're reducing the stress on that family. You're also offering that family more resources. You're offering them a trusted advisor, somebody you could ask questions to, um, somebody you can be in a relationship with. 
who knows a lot about child development. And so that, it turns out, to also have a positive impact. Because if you can, it's basically on some level an anti-poverty measure, frankly. Um, you know, if, and it, so that we know is another way that you have positive uh, impacts on child development. So, you know, this is basically, uh, the evidence is, is incontrovertible as a word that one scientific report used, uh, that early childhood experiences are deeply influenced uh, later academic and life outcomes for children. Now, you argue in the book that you, um, you know, favor an approach that would basically make universal child care allowances, that make child care affordable for all families, essentially free or whatever to, you know, effectively achievable to any family in America um, through something like child development credits. You argue that this should be, in your view, a bipartisan issue, that there are elements that you see um, that it fits into strong, you know, left and right kind of philosophies of the world. Um, in a nutshell, like what, uh, you know, how could that be? There are so few things these days that are bipartisan. <laughs> um, could you some, could you sort of say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I will say, and you know, my book came out in 2019, and I will say, some of the, unfortunately, some of the politics of this have shifted since then, uh, you know, kind of unsurprisingly, when a Democratic administration embraced this as a signature policy, it, you know, it causes a natural blowback. Um, but, you know, the, as prior to this, in the past couple of decades, uh, you know, early childhood education has had a really strong bipartisan support. Actually, some of the first states to have universal pre-K systems were red states like Oklahoma and, and I guess you call it Georgia, a purple state at this point, but, you know, Georgia in the 90s. Um, you know, and, you know, West Virginia, again, is another state that has a strong universal pre-K. Um, you know, the, the chambers of commerce have often been very, um, you know, vocally supportive of early childhood. And you basically get kind of two arguments. One is the economic argument. So, you know, even if you set aside all the good things for child development, the fact is that, you know, child care is necessary for, for parents to work and to be able to, so it affects recruitment, it affects retention, it affects, you know, employee satisfaction, it affects productivity. All, all of these things are influenced by whether or not there's a functional child care system. So there's an easy business case to make. Um, some of the more sort of long-term business key folks have even made the case, you know, this is our future workforce. So I don't love thinking about like toddlers as like units of future economic productivity, but if you wanted to take that view, you could. Uh, you know, and then there's this question also around, again, family stability and family friends. So for sort of the more kind of conservative movement who's concerned around that, there, there is this sense like, okay, like, yeah, if parents are super stressed out because they're having to scramble to find or afford childcare, that can, you know, lead to family disillusion. It can lead to a higher risk of divorce, or right? it can lead to all of these sort of high risk of abuse or neglect. All these things that are negative outcomes for kids and for families can follow. So there's an argument there too. What I also say though is, uh, you know, I think where there may be more sort of a tie even today is is often stay-at-home parents are left out of the kind of the conversation. And so uh, about a third of kids in America have a stay-at-home parent. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is, I think, ways we can also talk about making sure that we're honoring that choice just as much as we're making sure that it's viable to have external childcare choices. In fact, in the book, you you basically talk about that you think we should change the narrative around this kind of stay-at-home parent kind of notion. Yes, I do. Because, you know, again, I think that if anyone who has had a kid or, or, you know, seen someone take care of a kid knows it's work. It is labor. I mean, it is not easy. I think my job is much easier than, than it is to, you know, be at home with a, a toddler all day. Um, 
And also in today's economy, you know, which is often requires multiple income streams coming in with our high cost of living and relatively stagnant ish wages, uh, you know, it can be a not as viable a choice as as some families would like it to be. So I think we should honor that. And the way that, that you do this, and, and this is actually I talk about their northern European countries often thought of as more the social welfare, social democratic countries like Finland and Norway uh, offer what's known as a home care allowance. And that sounds exactly what it sounds like. Basically, if a family says, I'm going to opt out of that publicly supported, you know, child care, external child care system, then you get a stipend, uh, you know, of a few thousand dollars a year, you know, that basically help you defray the costs of staying home, the opportunity cost of the money you're not making from being in the workforce, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, I do think that's something we could talk about. I also think we should talk more about this question of the, the true informal caregivers. And what I mean by that are, um, you know, grandma, grandparents and, you know, aunts and, and neighbors who do take care of quite a, quite a large number of, of children on any given day, um, and again, are often kind of in the shadows or just aren't sort of embraced. So when we talk about a pluralistic childcare system, like, yes, like the bulk of the money has to go to shore up the the sort of more formal, the family childcare programs and the centers and the pre-Ks, right? Like that that's the most expensive thing to deliver, and that's the one that is the hardest to sort of sustain without that public money. But I do think that we could do a better job of um, embracing the informal caregivers and the stay-at-home parents in that system as well. So truly any any choice is honored um, and that any choice is supported so that we know the kid is getting the best possible experience and we know that the family is, feels good about the, the kind of care setup that they're, they have for their children. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the policy that is very much in the news. Um, as we're, of course, this is a fast-moving area, and as we record this, um, just yesterday, um, President Biden, I believe, released this Build Back Better framework that included um, reference to early childhood care. As kind of a quick rundown for people who have been following it, what are some key pieces of this framework that, that Biden administration has talked about? Yeah, so when it comes to the early childhood, there are two main aspects. One is universal pre-K. And so basically within three years, uh, every state that chooses to opt in will be offering a free spot in a, in a pre-K for every four- and three-year-old child. Um, and the, those slots will be delivered through a combination of school-based programs, Head Start expansions, and then also the, the sort of private child care market. So um, a family child care provider could, could become a pre-K provider, your, you know, things like that. A private center, so that's the the kind of universal pre K, and that's, that's for everyone. So it doesn't matter where you're in. Because basically, think about it as extending the public school model back kind of age three, uh, but delivered in in different through different settings. Then the child care pieces of things, so this would be your infants and your toddlers, your private child care programs that don't do pre-K, you know, your wraparound services, because pre-K is only going to be on a school day, school year, you know, uh, sort of schedule. Um, what would happen is that there would be a slight, basically states would start to reimburse those programs at the true cost of care. So remember a few minutes ago, I said like, hey, the true cost of care might be $20,000 a kid. Uh, well, that's what, that's what it costs. That's what states will start to reimburse programs. And, and as you can imagine, what that instantly lets them do is, is raise, raise wages. And in fact, states would need to put in place for all of these, for pre-K and child care, wage scales, um, which would have a floor of a living wage, and so no one make under a living wage. And then as you increased in your sort of experience and credentials, you, you would continue to move up the wage ladder and you would, um, you know, once you have equivalent experience and credentials to an elementary school teacher, you would be at full pay parity. 
this will make the field much more competitive and attractive as for, to, to potential employees. Uh, on the parental sort of fee side for childcare, there would be really deep subsidies. So if you make under 75% of state median income, which is in most states around 60-ish, $70,000, it's free. It's completely free. Uh, you know, if you're making between basically 75 and 100% of the median income, you know, you're paying a maximum of 2% of your income. And this is for all kids, by the way. So you could have a, a you know, one-year-old and a four-year-old, and this is covering all of them. Um, and then, you know, you pay max 2%, and then that keeps going up a little bit, you know, as your income rises with a max of 7% of your income, um, unless you're making over 250% of, of state median income, which is a truly, you're very affluent. Like in Massachusetts, I think that's like $300,000. Um, so, you know, that's not, it's not really a problem. Uh, and so, yeah, so, and so the, and there are lots of other things in there, but primarily like what I like to say is when you boil it down, it's going to mean it's going to cost an awful lot less. There's going to be an awful lot more spaces and options and teacher pay is going to go up an awful lot, which is going to be the quality is going to increase. So, uh, you know, fundamentally that that's what this is. It's an, look, it's not a perfect bill. It's imperfect. There, there are certainly things I would change if, if but, you know, given the, the environment we're in, it, it would truly be transformational. It's going to be the first time in this nation's history we have a functional early childhood, early care and education system. And that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, you call the current system a non-system. Yeah. Um, it is. And I, you know, I'm not the first one to say that. But what do you mean by non-system? It's so fragmented right now, right? Like you have, even with most places, most communities you could not tell you where every child care provider is or who is providing childcare in their community. Like it's, it's so fragmented. Programs are so isolated. Uh, you know, what infrastructure exists is clunky and sort of has been hollowed out by decades of disinvestment. Like it really isn't like a coherent system in place. It is, is very much still kind of a wild West, um, you know, despite best efforts. And so and it's, it's really hard to build a system where there's no money. So what do you see as the biggest obstacle to the reforms that are being debated right now? I think it right now, like as of I don't know, 10 o'clock a.m. on October 29th, things look pretty good for the actual bill um, getting passed. I think what's going to be really easy for the next challenge is implementation. So it's a pretty quick uh, implementation timeline. Three years is actually not that much time, and some of the benefits start coming online much quicker than that. Um, we, you know, the workforce, which has not been, you know, like I said, we're already down quite a lot of, of teachers and, you know, there's this question of we're going to have a lot more kids presumably coming into to the system who previously couldn't afford to. Uh, so we're going to, you know, need to build up our workforce. Uh, we're going to need to our, build up our facilities. Like we're going to need to do a lot of of work to make this actually implementation roll out as smoothly as possible. I don't doubt there are going to be some kinks. It's, we're, we're, I've said this and saying this a lot, like we're building a system where no system existed. Like, yeah, it's going to be a little messy. Um, but I do think that, you know, starting now to think through the implementation questions, making sure, um, you know, that we have parents and practitioners at the table with policymakers. So this being responsive to different population needs, like all of that, I think is going to be uh, what we need to make sure that the actual implementation of this goes well. We'll certainly be watching this. Um, thanks for helping us kind of walk through these issues uh, and for joining us today. Appreciate it. Sounds great. Thank you so much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you interviews and stories like this one. Please subscribe to the Ed Surge Podcast on whatever your favorite app is for listening. And if you like the show, leave us a rating or a review. And if you haven't already, sign up for the Ed Surge Podcast newsletter. To get announcements of new episodes, 
and links to bonus resources for every episode. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. While you're on that page, you can also sign up for EdSurge's pre-K-12 newsletter, where you'll get our expanded coverage of early childhood education, as well as the rest of our K-12 coverage. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter, at J.R. Young. Also, you can shoot me an email at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Montplaisir. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.